This is the Planetary Potential Podcast. For those who are eager to explore entrepreneurship, innovation, and cross-cultural communication in exciting and interesting places around the world. And now, here's your host, Andrew P. Rowan. Welcome to Episode 18 of Season 1. What can you learn about yourself, your hometown, and your country by living somewhere else? This week, we're joined by Diego Centurion Tapia, who returned to Peru after almost a decade in Europe and Asia. In our interview, we discuss what it was like juxtaposing European and Asian experiences, looking at Peru through a shifting lens, and similarities between Southeast Asia and Latin America. An important reminder that opinions shared on this episode are those of individual guests. For more information, please visit www.andrewpirowan.com slash disclosures. Diego and I also discussed my impressions of Lima, how we met, and insights from his time in Beijing. Let's get started. With me is Diego Centurion Tapia, and we are in Lince, in Lima. It's a section of Lima at an undisclosed location. (laughs) And interestingly enough, Diego and I met at the Lima FinTech Forum, which was last month, and Mm -hmm. we met during, let's say, serendipitous circumstances. That's right. He thought I was somebody else, and then when he approached me, I thought he was somebody else. And it turns out we were both wrong. Yeah. But at that time, I happened to be wearing batik. a batik. And because so, Diego has lived and worked in Asia, he knew that the attire was Indonesian. That's so, right. of course, we started talking. That was a that dead point. giveaway. <laughs> yeah. And actually, he was one of two people who noticed. The other person uh-huh. who noticed had lived in Indonesia. Uh-huh. And I was surprised, of course, because I didn't expect people in Peru. Well, what do you know, a friend? <laughs> To recognize, but that just goes to show you what are the kind of flows of people today. So welcome, Absolutely. Diego. Thanks for joining. Thank you, Andrew. I appreciate the opportunity. So we've had the chance now over several weeks to get to know each other a bit better. Of course, we were together with some mutual friends and contacts on Wednesday, and it was it was a good good group. Yeah. We, we were uh, Peruvian, of course, uh, German, Indian, and Americans. Swedish and American, I think. Like, uh, oh, that's right. right Swedish right, right. and American. Correct, I always yeah. think of Frederick as a, as a German, a, as name, a German right? name, but you're absolutely right. Uh, and uh, it turns out that there were several I think, common experiences among us, even though we came from very different places geographically. Absolutely, right? yes. And, of course, you and I also, we've both spent time in Asia, Asia. me, of course, in Vietnam, and you in Singapore, and in, in China, China that's in correct. Beijing. And you visited Vietnam while you were based in Asia, correct? Yes, that's right. That's right. And so can you share a bit about what initially drew you to Asia in the first place and then what it was that you were working on while out there? Yeah, absolutely. So you see, my my interest in Asia uh, is actually pretty longstanding in the sense that um, I I went to university with um, a few few of the friends that I met in university had been brought up in Asia, right, mostly as um, expats, right? So I had heard great things about both Hong Kong and Singapore. It seemed to me like an exciting place. Um, so when I um, when I returned to Europe in 2011 for a master's degree in, on international business and emerging markets, I figured I would have a crack at um, relocating to Asia after my degree, right? So after a few applications, I ended up landing a role uh, at a large German bank called Commerzbank uh, out of Singapore. So I um, moved to Asia um, in, by the end of 2012, 
and I stayed in Singapore until the end of 20, until uh, mid 2016, and after that I moved to China, to Beijing, for and, about a year and a half. And so then you also you just recently moved back to that's right. to Lima, correct? And you've been here for how long now? Roughly six months. Roughly six months. So how how does it feel? Do, do you feel like uh, Lima has changed in the time that you've been away? Do you feel like you were here yesterday? Uh, do you find yourself missing parts and experiences of Asia? I do, absolutely. No, Asia has a special place in my heart for sure. Um, I think it was a very formative uh, period of time that I spent there. But going back to your question, I think uh, Lima has changed a great deal over the last few years. It has gotten uh, considered more expensive for one. But additionally, I find it to be um, in a period of transition, right? I, I think the city is maturing. Hmm. Uh, I find it to be more livable, to be fairly honest, than it was a few years ago. Um, livable in the sense that there's a little more concern um, about you know, providing um, citizens of Lima or, or dwellers with a slightly better day-to-day experience, right? Like, uh, for example, this is a street that we see out here, um, Avenida de Quipa. Um, it, it used to have very hellish traffic, right? Uh, loud, uh, it was dangerous, loud, um, constantly crowded. Uh, on Sundays, they close it off from beginning to end, from 7 a.m. to 1 p.m., right? So you see people, you know, like rollers, uh, rollerblading, uh, jogging and so on. And that to me is quality of life that was yeah. not afforded before, and it is now. So it's a bit of a vision now that's, uh, that's becoming, that's permeating, um, you know, authorities that, you know, it's about making the city a little more livable for the 10 million inhabitants, right? So actually I find now Lima to be properly middle income. That's my, my perception of it, which was not before. So, has your time in Asia helped to change the way you look at situations here when you're back in, in Lima in the sense that you know, my time in Asia really helped me to see things from a different perspective? One of, one of the, the kind of key realizations was that we could have access to the same set of facts and the same set of information and data, right? And then arrive to completely different conclusions as a result of, of that. Uh, and I, I experienced that very clearly in, in Vietnam in the work mm-hmm. environment there. So curious if if you maybe not had the same experience, but did you have similar experiences where something that should be obvious or logical to you uh, in that situation it wasn't, uh, or like it made sense to you, but for everybody else in that situation, you were the one who was out of order. Right. Okay. Let, let me see if I understand you correctly. So, so the first part of what you're saying is is whether uh, spending time in Asia has shaped my view in some in some way, right? And I would say absolutely yes, it has. Um, as a matter of fact, one of the things that I uh, that I credit the most um, to having lived in Asia is is it's, it's a very personal thing in the sense that uh, I I now view my surroundings very differently, right? Um, um, I, I was fortunate enough to, to um, get my education uh, in, in, in both Europe and the U.S., right? I had, I had uh, the luck to, to attend uh, pretty good schools. And, and I remember, you know, like, also I was younger, now I'm 33 now, but I remember I, I used to think um, that um, the solutions that we had to implement here in Peru for the country to, to thrive, to prosper, yeah. um, to get ahead, they had to, in some way, resemble what the policy or the recipe in the West is, right? Mm. Um, 
Now, Living in Asia has, shat, has completely shattered that, for the better, I would say. I think Living in Asia has shown me that you can, um, you can, you can extract, you can, you can identify and extract and, and, and sort of replicate good experiences. Yeah. But they have to be localized, right? They have to be put in context. Okay. Um, I think countries like Vietnam or Thailand, right, Cambodia, they're, they're, they're amazing success stories in their own right. And much of their success is, is or the way I see it, is, is due to the fact that they've taken uh, what's what's good in the West, right, and they've kind of made it local, hmm. right, and they have their own challenges and, and so on, and yet they are, you know, they're getting ahead. And and that to me has been a fundamental change because, as I said, I used to think that if we're not trying to resemble the West in some way, then it's not valid. But but now I don't think that anymore. I think that. You know, we're never going to be Denmark, and that's that's great. And, and we shouldn't be Denmark. We shouldn't aspire to be something like. No, we're simply not. You know, made of the same stuff. Yeah. For me, the time my, my time in Asia has taught me that we have to come up with our own solutions, right? Because there are countries out there with numerous challenges. A lot of them a lot more dire than our own, mm-hmm. and they are pulling ahead with their own recipes, right? Like maintaining a, a local identity. So, so that to me is is a major. Um, a major advancement in my own way of thinking. Right? Yeah. I, I see Asia as an example. As a matter of fact, I find Asia to be more relatable to Peru than uh, the West, despite the fact that you know we speak Spanish here and, and so on. We have this cultural heritage that comes from Europe in some way. But in terms of the challenges, right, population challenges, um, access to technology, access to healthcare, access to education, yeah. we're a lot. I think we're a lot closer to Asia, and we should view them as an example. Mm-hmm. I actually tend to speak about Vietnam a lot, as a matter of fact, when people ask me, right? Because I see Vietnam as a great example of having to kind of rebuild itself, right, after after the, the, the war period, and uh, then now it's poised to, to become a very large economy, right? It's booming, and, and yeah, I think we should be looking at that rather than many, uh, you know, Western examples. Okay, so then in the Peruvian context, right. do you still see that opportunity today to transition or to reorient Peru's direction to incorporate more Asia-centric principles in terms of growth and development? Or uh, do, you, do you see that transition already happening, like in the time that you've been away? I, I, I think that it's, it's, going to, it's, it's going to become... Um, it, it will happen, right? I, I find that to be like we're kind of like in that direction. And I think to a large extent is because of the level of investment, right? So, so I think if you follow the money, that that's a good indicator. And and now you see uh, very uh, you know intense uh, investment, intense funding coming from from Asia, right? Yeah. You see, uh, Didi is looking to set up here in Peru. They're already in Mexico. Uh, you find other other Asian Asian companies and startups looking to set up shop here. So that is definitely going to like draw. You know, the consumer's attention or, or just the people's attention to, to what's happening there, right? Yeah. Um, I, I, I think it's only going to become stronger. So in, in that sense, because you've had experience in Asia, do you see yourself as a potential bridge builder or an ambassador between Asia and Peru or, for example, Singapore and greater Southeast Asia or China? South America or, or Latin America? Yeah, you, it's it's really all about the timing, I would say. You know, like back when I was uh, back when I was living in, in Singapore, for example, let me tell you a quick story. Um, I I was working for a bank, right? I was working for, for a large German bank, and and one of the things that I thought could 
could, could, could work out was to start offering uh, private banking services to um, high net worth individuals in Latin America, right? Like yeah. build some sort of bridge between, um, you know, affluent popula population in Latin America that needed banking services and what's offered in places like Hong Kong and Singapore, right? Uh, as it turns out, this was back in 2013, 2014. Um, the ties between the markets were still very incipient, right, in, in, in the realm of, of private banking and, and wealth management, right? Yeah. So I didn't really find much of a of an opportunity for that at uh, that time, right? So I think really all about the timing, because if you think, you know, places like, like Singapore, they offer a great, you know, fine array of, of services, right, in, in, in wealth management to, to clients all over the world. They focus mostly in, in, in North Asia, that's that's kind of like um, banking, you know, like uh, private banking jargon for, yeah. for from China, basically, right? Um, okay. So there wasn't yet this, 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 this connection, but I think, I, yeah, I would definitely see myself try to build these connections and, and bring them closer, you know? Absolutely. Yeah, and so I, if I recall correctly, during one of our conversations, we spoke a bit about China, China's interest in not only Latin America, but the relationship between China and Peru. And you had, at that time, you had shared some stories, some, some discussions that you've had with Chinese uh, citizens about how they view Peru through the lens of civilization. Yeah, that's true. Actually, yeah, let me share share a story with you. So, so I, you know, the, the time that I spent in China, um, I happened to be neighbors with one of the Peruvian diplomats. Right, uh, we live in the same compound uh, in Beijing, and uh, shortly after my arrival, uh, they were celebrating uh, Peru's National Independence Day, which is in July, right? It's coming soon. And uh, the thing is, you know, having lived abroad uh, for many years and, and having been based in several countries, I have been have attended these events before, and they tend to be really modest, right? That's the truth. I mean, they're, they're just, you know, made for the small Peruvian community places right. like Singapore or, you know, like London and so on. Like, they're nothing out of the ordinary. If anything, they're, they're small, right? Um, this, however, was, I would say, a fixture in the diplomatic um, calendar of Beijing, which is a big deal, you know, because Beijing, you have to think of Beijing in the same terms as you think of Washington, D.C. Yeah. It has the same density of diplomats, right? Uh, they have their own investment bank, the Asian, you know, the, 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 they have their own World Bank knockoff, so to say, right? Um, <laughs> not just a knockoff, I mean, like, it has a different institution, right? But you have you have numerous uh, diplomats there, right? So, so sure. in terms of... Um, of diplomatic weight is, is akin to Washington, I would say. Uh, and the Peruvian National Day was a big event. And, and I remember the first time I went there, you know, they had rented out this large hotel, right, like very expensive place. Uh, and it was a very fine reception. I, I honestly did not expect it to be, you know, so fanciful, right? Yeah. And the thing is, they, they, they managed to read the Chinese right because they assess you in terms of how much money you display. That's the truth, right? Yeah. They will make an opinion of you based on how wealthy you appear to be, how good have you done in life, right? How yeah. well have you performed? So they managed to understand that. So they knew that in order for China to, for, for them to become prominent in China's radar, they had to display, they have to make a big display, right? Um, and at, at the same time, well, at the same time, I suffered a lot of interest from, from you know, like uh, Chinese diplomats sort of attending these events. I, I, I visited, I, I attended two of these events, um, 2016, uh, 2017, and, and uh, and I can see that, that there's there's a place of real importance in, in diplomatic relations with Peru, right? Like mm -hmm. they had a um, student
students from the Chinese Conservatory of Music performing Peruvian music in Chinese instruments, like something very bizarre, right, and real almost. And and they place great interest in, in nurturing relations with Peru um, to a large extent because they see us as a natural partner, right? And not only has Peru been a recipient of Chinese immigration in the past, right, right? but on top of that, uh, going more to what you were hinting, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I, I've, I've been told by, by uh, more than for a handful of fellows that uh, China views Peru as a survivor, the same way they view themselves, right? So, so, so China tends to think of itself in terms of a, of civilization, right? Uh, mm-hmm. China looks at the big picture. They say, we've been around for 5,000 plus years, right? We remain essentially Chinese, right? The same civilization of our, uh, you know, going through all these challenges, right? Undergoing all these transformations. It's yeah. as if the Romans were alive today, or the Egyptians were alive today, the, the way we think of them in the past, right? So they see themselves as survivors. And they see Peruvians, the Incas, right? The, the, the uh, you know, heirs of the Inca Empire, also survivors. So, so in that sense, they, they have a bit of a, a special relation to us because they, they, they think you guys have endured time. You guys know what it's like to endure in time. And I'm not talking about 50 or 100 years. I'm talking about millennia here. Yeah. Right. Which to me was a big eye opener. Right. So, so we do have a very special relationship with China. They, they, they uh, you know, back when the previous president Kuczynski he visited, it was very close to one of the Chinese um, public holidays. You know, because they, they, they don't have like one day here and there. They kind of like box them up and, sure. you know, so you go on holiday for seven days or, right. That's when there's some massive migrations all the time, uh, and yet they, they, they welcome him, right? Uh, which is something that you know you don't really see often, right? That they would rather reschedule. So you see small things here and there that, that actually are very telling of how China, uh, the level of appreciation they have for Peru. Uh, I think they still exert their dominance, their weight, of course, right? That they're, they're a massive trade partner. Yeah. But within that, they, 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 I, I can sense that they have a special relation with us. Other countries that have their shit more together than us, uh, wish they had that level of uh, involvement with China. I can tell you that do, for a fact. Do you think that the Peruvian government takes full advantage of that unique relationship? No, 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 no. I, I, as I told you, I, I was close to the to, to the um, to the embassy staff back when I lived in Beijing uh, between 2016 and 2017. Yeah. They they know that that we enjoy a, a pretty good relation with them. Um, but I, I, I don't see Peru making, you know, the same efforts at the same level as Chile is doing or as Mexico is doing, right? I think we, 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 we would benefit from integrating a bit more, um, you know, on, on many, on many, on many fronts, right? For example, um, you know, the, the, the Chinese are, you know, they're hungry for natural resources, of course, right? That yeah. they, they come and, you know, they, they, they're, they're mining interests here and whatnot. But but I think beyond that, right? There, there, there is if you kind of like you don't stop at the macro level, right? Because at the macro level you see commodities, right? You see uh, oil extraction, you see like um, you know uh, fishing rights and so on. But but if you see more yeah. at like the consumer level, there is a level of similarity, right? Like they you know like Lima, Beijing is a migrant city, mainly from people in China, right? So it's largely a migrant city. Lima is a city of migrants as well. Most people in Lima are not from Lima. They're from elsewhere in the country. Like, there's a number of things that are very similar. And, and when you visit, when you see that the, the way they behave, like this kind of like family-centric view 
of, of, of the world, right? Like how, how they're kind of like striving to get ahead. They're very astonishing similarities. And I think that translates into market opportunities, that translates into business practices. If it wasn't because of the language, I think we would be a lot closer together. Yeah. I, I think, honestly, there's a natural fit there. And is that natural fit unique to Peru, or could you also make that same comparison with other countries in Latin America? I don't know, to be honest. I, I'm, I'm not sure. I, I don't know how how that would pan out with other, other countries. Um, I don't know. Yeah, because I'm just thinking of market size, you know, back to mm. the, the macro level, right, yeah. as you were mentioning. Uh, if you're solely focused on economics, of course, you're looking at Brazil and Mexico. Right? Exactly. Um, but no, it, it, interesting to hear what has been the anecdotal impression. What, what else do you see as opportunities for that relationship between Peru and China to deepen? Because ultimately, you, you have that, that migration base, right? That wave of Chinese that came over. Right. And also you have that, um, no, that's reflected in, in Chifas today, for example. Right, right? exactly. And, which is that mashup between Chinese cuisine with Peruvian flair, right? Absolutely, yes. And Cantonese cuisine, yeah, from Guangdong. Cant Cantonese. And so, also, at, at the same time, you have, uh, of course, Chinese products that are here, like all the tricycles Absolutely. are, are from yeah. China, right? It's very noticeable. Li Fan, uh, I believe, is, is the brand. Okay, yeah. And so, you know, you have these different touch points of obvious interaction or engagement or connection with China. Um, where are the Chinese tourists? Or well, they, they, they certainly are here in large numbers as well. They, they're very interested in Peru. Um, they, they see a Peru as a destination that, that they'd like to visit, and, and you see that in the main sites, like Machu Picchu and so on, right? They, they do visit Peru. It's a little further away than other destinations, so that's why the, the, the volume, the flow, right? The, the inflow of tourists is, is perhaps lesser than Europe or Australia. But they are interested. Um, I have come across people who, who have been to Peru. Yeah. And, and I would say, you know, going back to what you were saying about, like, you know, the, the, the connection between markets and the, the, the Chinese are very customer centric. And, and in a funny way, because their customers, you know how every company strives to be more customer centric and meet the needs of the client. The Chinese are very intuitive about this, right? Like, they. They cater, they cater to what consumers want, right? Which is which is more convenience. Mm -hmm. So for example, um, last mile delivery in China, right? Very, very, they, they have a very strong game. E-commerce, very strong game. Logistic network, out of this world. The reason why I'm now uh, uh, working in digital transformation is because the time I spend in China. Is because what I saw there, I had not seen anywhere else in the world, right? And, and, lucky enough to be a well-traveled individual, I have not seen, um, you know, next generation um, um, payment, payment, uh, you know, platforms. I have not seen, you know, sharing platforms like Mobike or virtual wallets like WeChat. That is very unique to China, and that's extremely customer-centric. They have this kind of funny way of, of, of just catering right to what a customer wants, right? They, they are, have this no-bullshit approach, yeah. right? Like, and they, 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 
of course, they have the manufacturing muscle there, right? Like, so anything you, you have in your mind, you can have it prototyped and, and made, right? And produced and, and manufactured. So you find really funny things when you go on Taobao, you know, like blankets for two people, these kind of things, right? Very funny things, like small things uh-huh. that, that makes them, you know, like they're extremely customer-centric. What you see here in transportation, I, I would say, is, is already a sign of, um, of you know, like the, the, the two... The, the two countries, their economy is kind of becoming more interlinked because, you know, j- just to kind of like wrap this up here, you know, like how in China you don't just have, you know, everything between motorcycle, a pedestrian, and a car. Yeah. All those spaces are filled with different sort of forms of vehicles, right? Like um, sure. uh, scooters and so on, right? So, so what we see now is actually what's permeating a bit of, of that, right? I used to own a, an electric bicycle in Beijing. It was the best thing ever. I beat traffic all the time. I miss one here, you know? I wish I owned one. Um, and I'm sure that's that one delay because people will see that as a growing emerging city, in a, you know, growing city in an emerging market, we have the challenges that most of them have, right? Overpopulation, yeah. um, poor urban planning. So they hold, the, they hold the solution for a lot of that. As I understand, the tricycles entering into traffic patterns here in Peru, that's a result of a presidential initiative in the 90s, right? Through cycles, meaning like the... the tricycles, the, the uh, motorcycles with three wheels. Right. That you see every... We would call them tuk-tuks, right, of course? Right, right, right. They came because of some presidential emphasis Back in from the 90s. Peru to, to call them over. Thinking about that bilateral relationship mm-hmm. between Peru and, and China, um, have have you met many Peruvians who have spent time in China and then have come back here, or even in Asia? In I've general? met many Peruvians living in China. Yes, uh, perhaps more than I expected to ever meet. Right? Uh, there are definitely not that many in Singapore. Singapore is a different ballgame as well. Right? It, yeah. It's more like you know corporate. It's more profit driven. Uh, immigration to Singapore is a lot more selective. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would say back when I lived there, uh, up until 2016, the Peruvian community was maybe about like 200 strong, max, right? In Singapore. Yeah. Uh, that number easily quadruples, if not more, in China. And the reason is that China gives out a lot of scholarships, right? And, and what's interesting to me is that you find now you can go to Chinese universities and you can see Latin American students studying their full undergraduate, not postgraduate, undergraduate degree in Chinese. And that to me is, is, is China flexing a bit their soft power, right? Because um, the, these scholarships often, often include a year of language training. So they come first to China to get language training yeah. and then they do the university degree. Um, and of course, for master's degree and um, also for PhDs, that's also the case. I've met Peruvians studying you know, physics degree or engineering PhD in Chinese in, in, in China, right? And many of them stay on. Um, I know a handful of other three siblings I started a restaurant in, in Beijing. So, so there is a Peruvian community there. Many of them benefited from, from um, right, help or scholarships from the Chinese government to, yeah. to move to China. And they eventually made their home there. So, mm-hmm. so there's a pretty large community and, and you know, Peruvians from all walks of life, right? It's, it's actually a very fair representation of Peru, which which is which you don't often find. So, talking about Peru and, and how centralized it is, mm-hmm. especially here in Lima, right? right? Almost one out of three people in Peru live in the capital region. That's right. Can you talk a bit about what you've seen in terms of scaling for some of the startups or SMEs that get some initial traction here? 
you, you said something interesting the other day, which was, you know, once they reach a certain inflection point here in Lima, then they look to, like, Santiago. That's right, Or they yeah. look to Bogota. They don't That's necessarily look at expanding inward. across the rest of the country. That's that's true. That's true. I, I would say, I would say that you know when when you mentioned right, like it's, it's 32 million uh, people here, right? The population is 32 million strong. Um, that that is that's uh, that number. Uh, you need to you need to take it with a grain of salt when you look at market size, right? Yeah. Because the Peruvian market is, is is not 30 million strong. I mean, you look at Lima, the services, the availability of services that you have here is definitely not the same as what you have in Arequipa or Trujillo, just to name other top-tier cities, let alone smaller ones, right? Sure. Uh, so, so, you know, and even within Lima, right, 10 million people, I would say that the you know, number of um, opportunities, that the, the service level that you encounter in, you know, a few central districts here is, is way more numerous, right, than what you find in the outskirts. So, so Peru is actually a, a small market, and, and that reflects in in the, you know, the route that some startups take, uh, you know, pursuing growth, right? Um, that's right. I mean, so one, once they gain traction, uh, you know, they get some nice revenue coming in, most startups would feel like it's it's a natural next step to look at Santiago or or, or, or Bogota. And, and that's because those markets, they're kind of more, they're more similar to Lima, right? In terms of, of size, uh, purchasing power. They're not that... Um, thrilled uh, at the prospect of expanding in Peru, um, you know, you, maybe perhaps global is, is somewhat regional in Peru, right? But I don't know any other example. I mean, uh, you know, you don't find Uber in other cities yet. I, I don't know if in Arequipa, but, you know, like they, they look at market opportunity, they look at, I mean, you know, where can I find a large number of potential clients yeah. that have the money and the accessibility to buy my products, right? Take a trip three hours east of Lima and tell me if you can have a conference call or the, the, the bandwidth, the, the internet connectivity yeah. becomes dramatically poor very fast mm. outside of Lima. How are you going to sell people stuff online? You know, if three hours, you know, uh, inland, they have poor connectivity, right? So, so, so I would say you, if, if I were to come up with a recipe of sort of like enhancing the marketing improve, I would say enhance the market but making those that are outside the current you know the current norms that's a very high entry level cost right get them in I mean Peru could be a 30 million strong market if everybody had access to uh, you know uh, high speed broadband if there were you know um, uh, telecom operators serving the whole country if there were uh, you know banking services available to people you know everywhere, not just in the large urban centers. I think that's what limits us, to be honest. And, and, and I wouldn't blame a startup wanting to go to Santiago or, or Bogota after Lima, because, you know, you're pursuing growth, right? Yeah, it, makes, it certainly makes sense from that perspective. Yeah. But the service gaps that you mentioned are quite vast, right? Yeah. It's not something that you can roll out in two or three weeks. Certainly not. And so I, I, I wonder what then might be the role of not just the public sector but the private sector as well in trying to address those those market needs and those gaps i i see a very healthy trend in that sense actually because um even if you look at it on purely economical economic terms right from, from a purely economic standpoint 
you want if you if you want to sell more products, right? If you if you want to increase uh, sales, you need to somehow bring these people up, right? I'm talking about the, the bottom of the pyramid. I mean, I'm talking about underserved populations, right? Sure. So I, I see I see real initiatives. Like I see I see you know large conglomerates because you know how Peru is big on conglomerates, right? The chabels are kind of like that's how how we roll here. So you have large conglomerates, you know, Intercor, Breca, and so on. You know, they're umbrella names for groups of 10, 20, 30 companies, right, across the entire uh, spectrum of, of, of uh, you know, economic sectors, right? Yeah. And um, so many, many of them are, are actually making a move to include, yeah. right, a provide maybe health services or, you know, schools and so on. And, and that, in a way, even if you think about it in purely economic terms, makes sense. Because, you know, the more services you provide, right, the healthier population you have, the more educated you have, besides your normal sphere of influence, the more potential clients you end up having, right? Because, hey, you know, healthy, educated people are likely to become productive members of society, earn money, pay taxes, consume. Sure. So there is, there is, there is a great deal of interest in that. They, they see that as an opportunity. So where does your work fit into that vision? Because you focus on UX and human-centered design. Right. Can you talk a bit about what is the, let's say, current state of those areas of focus here in Peru? Like, how many people are working on, the, on those uh, domains? You know, I, I don't know about numbers, but I mean, I would say it's not saturated, right? Um, I would say, you know, some large companies, like I know some banks that are only maybe two years ago started hiring for UX designers, right? How many years ago? Two years ago. Two years ago. Some large banks only started hiring for UX two years ago. Like, they're very novel positions, right? Um, a few of the conglomerates have set up their own innovation labs. You see um, La Victoria Lab, which belongs to um, Intercorp, right? Um, they have a very strong partnership with IDEO. Then you have um, Brain, which is part of Breakup. I mean, they're, they're pumping in some significant uh, resources. I, I would say that there, there, is, uh, there, there is an opportunity in that whenever you are, you are you're trying to create a product from, for, for, a, for a demographic that you know little about, yeah. um, unless you're very close to them and unless you gather some, you know, some significant data about them, unless you, 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 you build some deep understanding of their needs and, and, and priorities and ambitions and, and patterns of you know, behavior, behavior, and, and then you're you're likely to fail if you don't do that, right? So, so I think there is there is some opportunity for companies trying to to, to perfect products that could feed uh, the needs of of, 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 of people underserved populations in getting to know them, right? So, so just to talk a little bit about what what I do, um, I try to position myself, right? Position myself in this gap there usually is between the um, the market demand, right? Like the, the consumer profile, the, the, what their needs are, their aspirations and so on, and, and, the, and the product development. So what I offer my clients is actually the opportunity to, to gather more data. I use ethnographic research and so on. I, I use some UX techniques. I, I have a background in social science so that helps uh, gather information from the people they want to engage with, right? And feed that back into the, the production process, the, the, the product development process, right? That's that's part of what I do, and and I think there is there's plenty of um, of uh, of opportunity for that. Um, private sector, I, I think, uh, well, some of the companies that I mentioned, they're they're, they're catching up, they're, they're catching onto this, um, and, and I see some some pretty praiseworthy efforts to, to, to cater to, to that demographic, right? 
another thing to just to just to quickly wrap up is that you see now uh, more money uh, outside uh, the, the the traditional um, sort of like say concentration points, right? Uh, I would say that that in in a way, right? Like this this desire to cater, right, to to underserved populations also responds to the fact that now there is a lot more money in places where you used to think that there isn't. And just to give you a quick example, mm-hmm. I remember speaking to the Bank of Singapore, which is uh, which is uh, what, what I think probably Singapore's flagship um, uh, private bank, right? And, and this is back, was back in 2013. And they were interested in uh, offering their price. One of the few banks in Asia or, or in Singapore that was interested in clients, uh, establishing a, a client base of, of uh, wealth management in Peru or, or Latin America. And the reason is they said, you know what? The thing for us is that you know we, we go to the old money, right? In countries like Peru, they've been banked for generations already. Like you know, they're they're the crazy Swiss or Jewish bar type of guys. They're not gonna come with us, right? We're Bank of Singapore. They go to the new money. They, they go to they go to you know they they go and knock on doors of people who whose profile you wouldn't quite traditionally match yeah. with affluence, right? So Bank of Singapore knew of this five years ago. It, it's I think it's only normal that you find local companies also approaching you know different 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 pockets right of the population because there's money now everywhere so the, you're saying then the, the sophistication of these products is deepening whereby the organizations realize that there are new sources of capital that are emerging as potential customers and so they have to think a bit more well they have to think less conventionally Absolutely. in order to try and find those new, new avenues of capital Exactly. Yeah. So, so people who concentrate wealth uh, nowadays in, in large numbers um, are, are not traditional profiles, right? You know, they maybe they 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 build their own fortunes, right? Like you, you find that a lot, and you you see that people derive a great amount of pride in progressing up the social ladder here. We just saw that at a restaurant that that we were at. You remember that That's that little right. sign? So right? we so, had uh, a wonderful ceviche lunch. And also chicharrones, not just ceviche. And uh, it was at uh, a place called Ceviche de Ronald. Yeah, that's right. And there was a sign on the wall, which I'll ask Diego to read. Uh, in Spanish? In Spanish. Uh, okay, it's, it reads, Esta barra nació como carretilla, y a mucha honra. Ceviche sentimiento, arriba Perú. And in English, how does that so translate? So that, that would uh, roughly translate to this, this counter or, or this establishment uh, was born as a uh, caratilla, which is like a street trolley, right? Uh, and they're very proud of it, ceviche uh, sentiment. So so that goes to show, right, that uh, they're proud of their roots as uh, street peddlers, as um, street From, merchants. And we had a chance to speak to somebody there. Yes. And they said seven or eight years back, That's right? correct, yeah. And uh, this is kind of unique because in the course of my conversations here in Peru, I've heard almost the opposite, which is people try and stay as informal as possible. And so even even if they reach a certain point whereby they're compelled to report on their income and, and pay taxes, they might just shut it down and start up a new company yeah, until they reach the, the certain point again for reporting requirements. And then, of course, if you look at the number of SMEs here, it's like 98% of the economy. The majority of that, of course, are like micro enterprises. Right. Uh, so to, to see this story on the wall, 
because you know somebody had to decide to put that story Absolutely. on the wall, right? It didn't just happen. Yeah. And it, it kind of bucks that narrative that I've been hearing about here in, in Peru about these companies solely staying in the informal economy. So I, I wonder, I wonder what what's different in this instance, right? That's a good question. Um, you know, like what what you mentioned is right. I mean, I, I do also come across a number of cases that uh, you know that show very little interest or, or reluctance, you know, to lack of a better word, of a fully coming clean, right? Fully, fully becoming part of the of the formal economy. But but at the same time, I mean, you, you have conflicting narratives, right? For, yeah. That's the funny thing. That's the fascinating thing about a country like this is that you know there's not just kind of one way of, of thinking or approaching. Uh, a, a specific uh, circumstance, right? I, I would say there are conflicting um, narratives here because you also find people or businesses that uh, derive, a, derive a great deal of pride from having to start off uh, informally yeah. and have, having grown to, to, a, to an extent in which they, they now own an establishment, right? They now, you know, they're now fully registered and so on. So so you find, you find both, I would say... Um, it's a bit of an epic tale, right? Of of, of kind of like overcoming all, all you know, like having all the odds stack up yeah. against you and overcoming all of that. So so yeah, that that. I think it also depends on what your starting point is, right? Like how much comfort you have, what's your safety net, mm-hmm. where in the country you're coming from, whether it's an urbanized area or rural area. You know, this is something you said to me before, is like the cards that folks are dealt here, they, they take pride in having made something from a less than ideal. Oh, absolutely. No, that that, that is story of, of kind of like, you know, coming through and it's, it's very powerful here. Yeah. Yeah, so very, very interesting to see those, those two different narratives because I've heard much more about mm-hmm. the first one, about, you know, basically living and breathing in the informal economy. And I've met entrepreneurs, they I don't even think they would consider themselves entrepreneurs. There was one guy I met in Pura who basically would go to businesses kind of door to door and say, is this something that you, you need or you want? And if the business said yes, then they would produce it in batches, mm-hmm. right? And I said, okay, but like, there's no interest to scale it? Nope. Just do it, done with, and then t- take something else. We'll, we'll just we'll manufacture it and then sell it. Right. I said, Interesting. I said okay, and so th- that's kind of like the extreme, right? Mm-hmm. The other side is uh, you have a restaurant, right, or a cart, and then somebody else sees it. They might pool the family money together to move to a fixed location, or right. you know, if your neighbor sees you're making money off a cart, your neighbor also might try and start a cart too, right? And then you have exactly. this kind of clustering that you see in. in, in not only here, but in, in Vietnam more so. It's more pronounced. You see, I think I think one 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 common trait between between Southeast Asian countries and, and, and Peru, for example, is that um, you have a you have entrepreneurship that you know emanates from necessity, yeah. right, out of need. So, for example, Peru Peru tends to rank highly uh, in um, entrepreneurial spirit, rankings, yeah. right, entrepreneurial spirit and so on. Like they, they rank very highly, but. You know, you have to also take that with a grain of salt and dissect it a bit, right? In that, and you'll you'll soon discover that a lot of the entrepreneurial activity in Peru happens out of necessity, right? right. It's because people kind of exactly, you know, there are not enough jobs going around, so so people need to come up with their own employment. 
I, I think that's a great point, and oftentimes people, especially from the West, they come and they don't see that extra component. You know, they see the entrepreneurial drive, the entrepreneurial spirit, but it's not associated with, okay, if they don't sell, if they're not hustling, then they're not going to eat. Exactly. True. True. No, no, the circumstances are totally different, right? It's not like they have to choose between a corporate recruiter coming through a campus, right, or, or, or starting. No, it's not it's like that. It's a default economic option. Exactly. Like, you know, they're really just very little chances of this person to, to get a formal, regular job, right? And, and I think that's also reflected to a great extent in, in the level of um, the death rate of, of startups here, which mm. which I, I don't think is, is, I don't have the numbers uh, right now, but I don't think it's exceptionally high, but 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 a fair number of startups or, or, or companies, right, that, that um, begin operations, they, they die within the first three years, right? So it's a, it's a high number of, of, you know, attempts that, that fail, and, and you know, that that's not surprising because you see that, you know, it's out of need, maybe it's not very well prepared, not very well thought out, and it's just kind of one attempt after the other, right? And I think also that ties in with the fact that they might not want to become fully... Um, formalized, right? Because if you are going to have to attempt something several times and, and fail and then kind of start again, you'd rather do it under the radar, right? You know what I mean? Like, you, why go through the hassle of, right, registering, incorporating, right. and apps failing, right? Uh, why? Because in case it doesn't work out, it's much easier to exactly. wind it down than Absolutely. if you have to go through the whole process of dissolving a company. Yeah, it's a really interesting way, way of looking at it as well. I think last year, perhaps, was was when I, I had this big realization between the seemingly different disparate markets mm-hmm. being quite more similar, especially places like Vietnam and Egypt and Mexico. So I, I traveled to those three last year, and in particular in, in Egypt and Mexico, I, I saw the similar challenges. And, and at pitch days, like I could see the products and services regulations notwithstanding, they can be deployed in any of these markets or even the U.S. in the next day, which which to me was was quite surprising in that, in that sense. The connection that I I think is between Latin America and Southeast Asia, of course, it might just be my own biases, but I see the business environment, I see the challenges, I see the opportunities sort of like you said before, way more similar between South Southeast Asia and Latin America than with, let's say, the U.S. and South America, or U.S. and Southeast Asia. Possibly. Yeah. And it, 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 even the, the, the formalization of industries, right? you know, in the U.S., everything is developed. The industries, institutions, the infrastructure. Yeah. The infrastructure also <laughs> needs to be reinvested in. It's crumbling yeah. a bit. But, you know, like in Southeast Asia, new bridges, new roads, new airports. Um, I don't know if it's at that same level here in, in South America. Perhaps not as much. But those challenges with how do you be more inclusive in the economy, right? Mm. How do you get people connected online? How do you offer financial services to people who are unbanked or underbanked? You have that similar demographic, of course, in a very different context. I need much larger numbers. <laughs> Yeah. Well, yes and no. It, it, uh-huh. the, the population sizes between Southeast Asia and Latin America are about the same, it's between oh, okay. 620 and 650 million people. Right. Right. Uh, of course, okay. on the macro level here, 
you see, hey, everyone speaks Spanish except for Brazil, right? right? But um, it's it's a bit more complicated once you go vertical to vertical or industry to industry, right? Mm -hmm. um, especially the terminology, the words, the phrases are, are different in each country, even Slightly, yeah. in the same industry. In Southeast Asia, you know, you have at least 10 different markets, right? Yeah. And all different languages, all different styles of governance, uh, all different uh, economic baselines. Absolutely. But I, I, I do see I do see the opportunity to share and to co-create and to do do more exchanges between the two places. You know, one of the things that I mean, one of the things I, I, I agree with you wholeheartedly. I, I think there is there's plenty of commonalities that that you know they should be exploited. They should be um, tapped into. Uh, I see a couple of differences though, like and I, and I would like to elaborate a bit on in, in a few, sure. which is which are that I think infrastructure wise. Uh, Southeast Asia is, is 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 doing a lot better. I, th I think that's my take, right? You you have a, a strong network of airports. Yeah, right? you have a low cost flights everywhere, right? In the same way, almost as Europe has, right? I don't think yeah. you have that here, and, and that that's a big problem. And, and the thing is, you know, here is a world just one big chunk of land. Southeast Asia is a lot of archipelago and island, and, and right. That's a great point. Yeah. So so they manage, right? Despite their 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 you know geographic um, complexity. The other thing is is um, is safety, right? I, I mean, I think that the, the, the crime rates are are high here, and some oh, are alarming in some ways. Yeah. Uh, and that's something also that impairs business, especially when yep. I'm trying to reach the consumer, right? And, yep. and I'm a bit too, and I'm a bit to see guy, right? Yeah. I, I, that's that's where my orientation lies. That I want to solve problems for the people. And one of the biggest constraints that I see here is that it, it's it's very it's very difficult to kind of trust. Another person, if, if you know, like there is such a high crime rate, there, there is you know high potential for, for high risk for, for risk yeah. for robbery and, and, and theft, right? So that's that's difficult. For example, you know, like there is this one startup that I remember I recall from Berlin for Helpling. And what Helpling does is they it, it, it's like a marketplace app for um for for house cleaners. Yeah. Right. So so you have to let somebody in. That you do not know, and right. you have to let that person into your house. They're insured for the time they're working with you, right? So they break a, a jar and whatnot. But you have to let them into your house, and, and you have to trust that they will just clean professionally and they leave. Right. I see that, and this is my own bias. I see that very difficult to pull up here. Convincing somebody in Peru to just open their door to a stranger to come in and clean. I find that difficult. Maybe I'm wrong, eh? and I would love to be yeah. proved wrong. But low, you know. High crime rate and, and low safety, to me, equals low trust in the other person. And when there is little trust, yeah. I find, for example, Gojek, mm -hmm. right, in Indonesia. Yep. That, that would be a cool solution here, right? Forget about cars, go on a motorbike. I've used Gojek, amazing, right? You had to get a ride yep. for under, under, you know, under two euro, like very cheap, very like practical, right? They even sure. gave you a little net for your head if you don't want to like Right, like for for keep keep clean, right? For, for health reasons. Exactly, for health reasons. You know, like then, then somehow you need to trust that a person who's gonna drive you is not gonna like take a detour and you know take you to some dead end and 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 leave you bare naked, right? I mean, um, safety I think is a big is a big issue. It, it impairs markets a great deal. I, I agree with you in the sense. Well, I mean, I can't speak to uh, house cleaners in Peru or not, <laughs> right. but uh, I do agree with you that. At least in my experience in Asia, as a whole, it has been much safer than here in Latin America. The, the numbers speak for themselves. Absolutely. Like this is one of the 
murder centers, not Peru specifically, but Latin America, is one of the murder centers of the world. And, yes. and you don't have that. Um, of course, it's, it's very highly concentrated in places like Mexico, Guatemala, Salvador, Venezuela. Um, but in, you know, especially Hanoi has probably the safest city I've ever lived in. Wow. Uh, and I've lived in like about 10 cities uh, internationally. Right. Never, never felt unsafe in, in Hanoi. Um, now, of course, you know, I'm a big guy, right? So. <laughs> People will think twice before 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 try to. Yeah, and a foreigner of two, yeah. of course. But uh, yeah, really interesting comments on on that, and I agree. You know, the geography does, of course, influence what are some of the strengths and and the the natural gravitation towards opportunities in places like Southeast Asia, and it's Latin a America. Basic, it's, it's it's a basic. I would say. You know, it, it's another starter, right? Like, we, if you lack, if you lack uh, safety, right? If, if you lack that component of, you know, not being rubbed in the street, it, it's very difficult to, for any, you know, new novel idea to flourish if it involves services, right? Because services involve, yeah. especially if they're kind of like based on, on on an app, right? If it's a marketplace thing, they involve trust, right? Sure. It's really difficult to have that without, without, um, without, you know, like some basic uh, level of trust. Okay, so as we draw to a close, right. I always like to give the interviewee an opportunity to talk about something that I didn't ask. So if there's anything you want to share but I didn't ask you about, this is the time to do that. It can be about you or Lima, Peru, your time in Asia, or it could even be something general as what's the best advice you've ever gotten. So it's very open-ended, right. and this is your opportunity to do that. Wow, okay, good. Well, you know, in, in the vein of, of everything that, that we've discussed, here, um, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm an optimistic person, right? And, and I and I see that despite despite of, of these limitations, right, that, that we have here, um, I, I find that, that the entrepreneurial ecosystem here in Peru, especially the, the, the tech entrepreneurial ecosystem here, um, to be very interesting, right? And, and I think that Peru has always been a, a place, you know, that it's a very boutique place in some ways, right? Uh, if you look, for example, at agribusiness, right? Like we, we don't compete with the production might of, of, of South Africa or Brazil, mm-hmm. but Peru has some very niche products, right? And I think to an extent, you know, funny, this is kind of like my own my own um, rendition of events, right? But like I think to a large extent, that also translates into people, right? Like so, you have you don't have you know large numbers of of let's say you know. English-speaking engineers here, right? For example, so that like um, Intel would set up here instead of Costa Rica. You don't have that, but you do have, you know, some some very smart, creative folks uh, that have, you know, attained some level of success elsewhere and are trying to make it back here. And I think that's what makes it interesting, right? So it's really not about vast numbers. It's really not yet about scale. Uh, it, it's it's about like uh, you know small things starting out small, right? I think that's that's what I what I see after after you know after spending uh, so much time abroad and and, and I, I would think uh, yeah I would think that's our strength you know to kind of play to the niche it's certainly I think something that you wouldn't be you wouldn't have been able to say five or six years ago right <laughs> yeah that's right that's right and it's only because of the time you spent outside the experiences you had in Asia that Ooh. helped you to come back and see what are some of the strengths and, and opportunities for positioning here Absolutely. No, no, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I think, uh, you know, now now I look around and, and, and I see business opportunities rather than, 
depressing pictures, right? I, I used not to be the case back when I was younger, again, because yeah. of my upbringing and, and sure. you know, British school, uh, university in Europe and so on, right? Like, it, it's my, sort of like my, my map, my mental map was different, yeah. right? Yeah. And, and I'm very glad I, I got rid of that largely because of my time in Asia, but also also having, uh, you know, lived and worked uh, elsewhere. Grown so, older yeah, grown well. older, absolutely. And I think uh, adds a little flavor to the, to, to, to um, my assessment, right, I think. Well, super. On that note, thanks very much, Diego, for not only sharing your assessment of where Lima is today and, of course, Peru, but for sharing some insight from your experience in Asia and, of course, talking about that ever-important China-Peru relationship and really trying to figure out, you know, what can the role of Peru be in the future? Very exciting stuff to see. I'm Absolutely. certainly looking forward to my next trip back to Peru. Absolutely. Of course, I'll have to check out the south because I've only been in the north of the mm-hmm. capital. That's very typical, by the way. Usually people just travel to Machu Picchu. <laughs> well, I didn't do that this time, so right. I definitely have to come back. Until next time, thank you and take care. Absolutely, Andrew. Thank you very much. I always enjoy meeting people who have lived in multiple cities and continents as Diego has. Since our interview, he has deepened his professional endeavors in the corporate innovation and digital product space as a member of Globant's product studio in Lima. Muchas gracias, Diego. I hope you'll join me next week when we speak to the co-founder of a fintech startup specializing in foreign exchange. Thanks for listening.